Yeah. You ready? I'm ready. This is going to be interesting. Let's let's just do it. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Dining Hall Digest. For those just tuning in, this podcast is an attempt to recreate those unique dining hall conversations that you have with friends from everything about the hottest new Netflix series to the movements that challenge us and push us to be better. It's strange now to think that in some spaces, dining halls may become obsolete with the new challenges posed by COVID-19 in our ever-changing world. But despite the shrinkage of these sacred spaces, one thing still remains, and that's the power of young people to ask and think about thought-provoking questions and challenges and the ability of young people to imagine and work for a new, more free, more just world. Our podcast focuses each episode on the efforts and insights of a different young person who's making this world a more just, equitable, and loving place. If you have folks in mind that fit this description, please let us know. Young people are not just the future of leadership, but rather are the present creators of movements, ideas, and communities that will and are changing the world. Before we jump into today's episode, we wanted to take a moment to acknowledge the passing of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Quite frankly, I wouldn't have been able to get as far as I've gotten in life thus far without her tireless leadership and ferocious heart and her dedicated service to improving the quality of life for women everywhere. She's devoted her life to fighting for women and her life and legacy is a testament to that unending fight and unwavering search for justice that she has. While we mourn her passing, we're re-energized to continue our fight for equality and justice in this country, and we would like to remind everyone to register to vote, to make a plan to vote in person, and to speak out loud and often. I'm Elizabeth. I'm Nick. And this is the Dining Hall Digest. So this week, the young people that we're going to be hearing insights from are us, because we're doing a mailbag episode. What's a mailbag, Nick? A mailbag is a thing that a male person carries. But in this context, it means that we solicited questions, mostly on social media, some from harassing texts to our friends about what are the hot topics that people are thinking of. I'm pretty glad that we do a podcast about young people making change, especially with the passing of Justice Ginsburg and John Lewis in the last couple months. But... This week, we're doing a mailbag. Next week, we'll be back to it. Um, We'll be interviewing Erica Brown, who is an undergrad at Notre Dame, who is really leading the fight for Black Lives Matter in Oklahoma City. So we can't wait to talk to her. This week, though, changing the course and doing a mailbag. What's our first question? It's, It's great. It's one for you. And I don't remember who it's coming from. But Nick, what are your thoughts on I'm thinking of ending things slash Can you tell listeners what it is? (laughs) With that intro, I'm assuming that you have not seen this movie. You would be correct. Thank you. (laughs) So smart. So the movie, and I want to put this in verbal quotes, I'm thinking of ending things, is a Netflix movie. And I could give a brief description. It's about this woman who goes and visits her boyfriend's parents on their farm. Uh, It mostly captures their car rides back and forth. Uh, Obviously, this is a relationship that's not going to last very long. And we hear her internal monologue about how she's thinking of ending things. That is a very surface level description of this movie. It is uh, significantly more surreal and uh, heady. And that can really probably be attributed to the director and writer, Charlie Kaufman, who also did Eternal Sunshine, The Spotless Mind, being John Malkovich. That's kind of synopsis. My thoughts on this movie. (laughs) Um, I don't want to spoil it because there is a pretty big reveal. What I will say is that this movie is really bleak. And when people 
asked whether they should watch it, I've said no. Um, really? Yeah, it, it, it is incredibly existentialist. When I finished watching it, I was like, I don't think I like that movie. I thought about it more, and I think I've talked myself into liking that movie, but it kind of wavers on the day. It is just so bleak. Uh, Charlie Kaufman, through being John Malkovich and his his most recent film, Anomalisa in particular, has an obsession with like deconstructing these like entitled male characters and with portraying the interiority of the mind. And this one is a, is a particularly self-loathing mind. And that can get really exhausting. And I'm not entirely sure we need to have... I'm not sure that this movie needs to exist. It's kind of what I need to say. Ooh, in the film-watching-going community, what is the general sentiment around this film? Is it what you just said? Or did you feel pressured to have to like it because so many folks have given it rave um, um, I think that there are corners where, like, uh, I'm going to do this thing where I talk for about a minute on the auteur theory. So the auteur theory, the auteur Let's theory go. is, I believe, French for author. And it's this idea that for every piece of film, you could find a single author. And usually that means the director. This theory is, in my opinion, mostly BS. There are hundreds of people who work to make a film, including the actors, including the writers, including the editors. The editor in particular, I think, is a really underrated part of film. However, this film is like catnip for like auteur theory people because he both wrote and directed it. And it's so, sing like, quote, singularly his vision of what it should be. I don't really buy that. I think that uh, film is a very collaborative medium. So for people who like really believe like, wow, like this is like the purest of his vision that it could be, like that makes it a good film. Like regardless of how good the film actually is, like if it is a pure vision, that is a good film. And so I'm thinking of any things under that criteria is a good film. I'm a little bit more like, was it entertaining? <laughs> Um, was it insightful about the human condition? The first one, it definitely isn't. I'm sorry. Like, it, I don't know how you could find this movie, like, a fun thing to watch. I just don't. Um, it is kind of boring. The second criteria is insightful about the human condition. I think it is. And the more I think about it, the more I like it. That's why. is because I think it is more and more insightful about the human condition, especially about self-loathing and how we project ideals onto people and how we remember things. I think those themes were much better dealt in his previous films. And I'm not entirely sure I would recommend this film to other people. So those are my thoughts. Those are slightly long-winded. Thanks for coming to today's episode of Scalding Movie Takes with Nicotoni. So I have, I have another movie question though. Wes Anderson? Thoughts? Should I start watching Wes Anderson? Like, should that become a characteristic of mine? <laughs> so I really like Wes Anderson for the most part. I think his films, especially like The Royal Tenenbaums and Moonrise Kingdom, mix this kind of like whimsy <laughs> with deep melancholy that I find really moving. Should you watch him? He is an acquired taste. Yes. <laughs> I, would, I would recommend that you start with uh, Rushmore which I think is his second film, or The Royal Tenenbaums, which I think is his third film. Those are probably his like most accessible. In the mid-2000s, he kind of went down a rabbit hole and became kind of self-indulgent, and then came out the other end even more self-indulgent and made like set like several more like very good films. 
include him in Rise Kingdom, but I think it takes a while to get to there. I need to, I really do need to do this because my brother Jack loves Wes Anderson and him and his friends threw a Steve's Zoo themed <laughs> party last year. And I, I walked in and they were all wearing like red beanies and these white kind of polo shirts. And I was really, really confused because the only Wes Anderson film I had seen is the one about the dogs on the trash. I love dogs. And um, yeah, it didn't do it for I, me, I'll say. Yeah, it. I, didn't I didn't love that one either. <laughs> didn't love it. So I think I need to give it another try. <laughs> okay, so I see this next question and I don't, I don't like the premise of it. So why don't you just ask it? What is the best coast and why is it the East Coast? Honestly, period. Not even quite. This, this can be pretty quick. Uh, the best coast is the West Coast. It rhymes for a reason. And I've been on both now. Have you lived on the West Coast? Yeah, uh, you know, I've lived in Utah when I was younger. Okay, case um, closed. So I've but, lived on both coasts. Okay. One's on fire and... It's still the best coast. So that's all I have to say about that. You know what? This is just wrong. We're going to take you to New York and um, your opinion's going to change and it's going to be great. And we'll let our listeners know. <laughs> okay, Elizabeth. So I have a question for you or just like a topic. Like talk to us about modern love. Talk to us about the column, about the podcast. Talk to us about it. Oh, wow. I'm smiling so wide. I had a friend actually ask me this question yesterday. So for those who don't know, Modern Love is this beautiful column from the New York Times. It's been around for a couple of years and is now a podcast and is also a limited edition series on Amazon. And I may or may not have spent $20 on buying a tote bag that says Modern Love with a picture of people riding a bike together on it because I have the funds to do that, obviously. But Modern Love is something that I and both myself and Nick really enjoy. For me, it's for two reasons. One, I'm a hopeless romantic, so I'm a sucker for a good love story. But more importantly, the stories are just real. They're not filtered. They're written by readers of the times. And it's not only about love, romantic love. It's about falling out of relationships with family and with friends and with significant others, or also with yourself and figuring out self-love and what that looks like. And I just love it because it's raw it's painful sometimes it's really cringy at other times and I feel like there's always a line or two that I can highlight and relate to really really well so I love modern love it can do no wrong I would like to maybe one day write my own modern love piece um the time has not yet presented itself for that but uh I'll keep you all posted <laughs> what about for you Nick I am also a modern love acolyte really love the column really love the podcast not a huge fan of the tv show yeah not huge and it's also because i'm a hopeless romantic and i have very little deep to say about modern love just beyond the fact that i really enjoy it i think i think it's love is so much i, I don't want to say more complicated but it just takes on a very different tone and look than it did for our parents or our grandparents and there's just a lot more aspects to it and nuances of understanding standing relationships so I really appreciate the column because it makes you feel like you're not alone right someone else has had this yeah. crazy ghosting or running into the same person once a year every year unannounced what does that mean <laughs> and and you can kind of fall over it as like a universal community and I just my friend had also mentioned um the Metropolitan Diaries that are in the New York Times and I don't know if you've ever read it but it's short little blurbs about 
things that kind of happen in New York City that seem serendipitous or, or magical. And I think modern love has that same kind of feel to it which is just a really big pull for me. I love the magic, love the love. <laughs> we love the love. All right, next question, or just like a statement. Yeah. Um, we got several requests to talk about birds. Like for instance, what's your favorite bird? Um, birds are dying at an alarming rate and ducks. So thank you, Lily Arp, for these prompts, especially <laughs> for us who definitely know a lot about birds. We know so much. <laughs> so why don't you tell us a little bit about your encounter with birds? at Notre Dame? Basically, birds to me mean geese, um, and geese I hate, mostly because I was viciously attacked by a goose um, in the middle of quarantine time. Long story short, I was in the beautiful Notre Dame from March 13th, the day of quarantine, until the end of June. So I was here for forever, and now I'm here again. But I was walking around a part of campus, and there was a goose, and I may or may not have been stepping on its territory a little bit. And my friend was trying to block me from it. And it just came up from behind. And it flapped its wings and it hissed. And it went straight into my back and then straight from my ankles. And I fell down. And then it fell onto me and started flapping its wings onto my back. And then my friend had to push it off. And I had bruises all over my body. Couldn't walk around the lakes for weeks in trauma. And I'm just terrified and think they should be swiftly eliminated. <laughs> That's my take. So you've, you've heard it here. Birds dying at an alarming rate. Elizabeth is pro-birds dying at an it, alarming rate. It, I'm not saying it's not my fault. <laughs> Nick, birds? Question mark? Do you like birds. them? Do you know them? Um, I also am not a huge fan of geese. I tried to do a little bit of research, but then I fell asleep last night. So I don't have any thoughts. But Lily, we would love to have you on the podcast to talk about birds and why it's really Absolutely. important. So Elizabeth, both you and I are in grad school now. You at Notre Dame, myself at Yale. And we've been texting a lot about a specific phrase that we've been hearing a lot over Zooms, in classes. Let's talk about the phrase, the ways in which. Let's do it. Nick and I have decided to start counting it. Um, I think we decided, what was it, on Wednesday that we would start doing a count for the week of how many times we either read it or hear somebody verbalize it. From Wednesday until today, I have heard it or read it 10 different times. I don't understand why we use it. It is such filler language. It's saying so much and at the same time, absolutely nothing. <laughs> but it seems like every single grad student and every professor or academic or person who puts pen to paper and publishes something in a journal writes the sentence, I will be examining the ways in which. And I think we can do better than that. I really think I we I think can. we deserve better. I think we deserve better, honestly. <laughs> I, I agree. I've been hearing it so much. And it is, once you pointed it out to me, I cannot stop like cringing every time I <laughs> it's bad we would like to challenge our listeners this week to count how many times you hear or read the phrase the ways in which and to please report back and I think together we can stop this troubling phenomena <laughs> all right well with that we're going to go into a break we'll be right back Welcome back, everybody, to the Dining Hall Digest. In our second half, we're going to take a few 
more questions. So our first question is from our friend, Sean Wu, who was actually on our podcast. He kind of posed the topic to us about cancel culture, uh, especially how it can result in forgetting that we as humans are constantly, quote, in process. This is a pretty big topic. But Elizabeth, do you have any thoughts, just initial thoughts on this? Yeah, yeah, I definitely do. And I think cancel culture ties in really integrally with the question of can you separate the art from the artist? That's been a way that I look at it a lot. And I think for some folks, they should appropriately be canceled. And in thinking through this question, I was thinking of the example of Jean Bagnier, who is the founder of the L'Arche Communities um, to support people with intellectual and developmental disabilities. But it was found earlier this year that he sexually abused about six women in, in France and has this long, horrible record of abuse and violence. And for that, I think he's canceled, right? Like we no longer look up to him as this great figure. Um, but I think the work that he did with L'Arche and the communities that he helped to create are really important and beautiful. And there's a deeper question of how can we still support L'Arche and uphold that and, and really try to grow that beauty in those communities while separating ourselves from Jean Monnier. And I think for me, cancel culture has been tricky to, to navigate because I think that there should be a space for grace and forgiveness in everything that we do. And as Sean said uh, so eloquently, you know, we're still in progress. None of us are perfect. And I think we all mess up. I know I'm sure I said things at 13, 14, 15, 18 that I wouldn't have been proud of myself today. But I think that there is a line that we can draw between the extremely egregious and mistakes that we knew that we made due to a lack of insight, a lack of perspective and experience. I don't know exactly where that line falls. And I'm hesitant to say that cancel culture as a whole is really bad because I, I think it is good to hold people accountable to the things they said and did. But I think we also should be making a bit more room for grace when we're trying to work through our mistakes. Because if we don't hold each other with grace, I think we don't grow in our understandings of our misconceptions. That's kind of what I think of right off the cusp, but I would love to hear if you have any thoughts on this, Nick. Um, I think that my one of my first thoughts about cancel culture is that cancel culture as a concept is really hard to pin down and define. Um, and in that sense, it kind of is like taking the mantle of political correctness where cancel culture, uh, just like political correctness, could mean different things to different people. So mm -hmm. for instance, Elizabeth, you talked about like art from artists, you talked about some very pertinent aspects of cancel culture as we understand it. When I think of cancel culture, maybe this is because I've been like ingrained in the academy now. I think of like that Harper's letter from over the summer yeah. with like academics and journalists, Barry Weiss, uh, Thomas Chatterton Williams, talking about orthodoxy of like left thinking in journalism and the academy. So that's what that's what I think is like these these people saying like that there's an unforgiving puritanism in the academy and in journalism. So because of that like diffuse nature of cancel culture, I think it's really hard to say like cancel culture is good or cancel culture is bad <laughs> because it means mm -hmm. so many different things. So with that noted, uh, the first kind of like things about cancel culture that I can remember actually go back before <laughs> 2016, which was when like Stephen Colbert got in trouble on his old show, The Colbert Report, yeah. um, because his his like Twitter account tweeted out like a joke out of context that was like insensitive to Asian people. And it was like, mm. like vaguely insensitive. It was satirical in the context of the show, but it was tweeted out of context. 
and there was a hashtag cancel Colbert. The same thing happened a few years later when Trevor Noah was taking over the Daily Show. People like excavated uh, like past tweets. These were a lot of entertainers, um, not necessarily like really wading into the realm of politics. But cancel culture has concept crept <laughs> into politics and the academy and journalism where like now people are like wow like brett kavanaugh got canceled even though he like has a supreme court seat now that's what i'm saying is like it's really important to define things yeah <laughs> to tackle the particular one about free speech cancel culture and the academy and journalism thing i think that it's important for like a diversity of viewpoints. I think in my field, political science, and especially American politics, it's a pretty liberal field. And I think that that's not a particularly great thing. I think that we definitely have blind spots that could mm. be corrected by a more diverse set of ideological viewpoints. That being said, I, I think that there is a line where criticism turns into like, quote, canceling. Mm -hmm. But also, like, criticism is an important part of academia. Like, there there are peer-reviewed journals. Like, if you are a public academic or a journalist, like, you should be open to public criticism. We'll get into Twitter later. Mm. Twitter has made this much worse. Yeah, yeah. But I think that criticism and critiques... Um, are important yeah so that's i think you make a good point i think about this a lot in relation to student gov last year and i think how that was such a small position in the grand scheme of things but it always felt constantly that i had to ensure i was always like dotting my i's and crossing my t's and i could never ever ever once think or say the wrong thing and i think in a lot of ways that pushed me to think more intentionally to read more critically to dive in deeper to, to topics that i didn't know and to not just speak off the cusp right and to, to ask more folks for their perspectives but i also think maybe sometimes it can limit us from branching out into harder discussions in fear that if we say the wrong thing once, the critique is going to overtake the growth mindset. I don't know if that makes sense, but I guess what I'm trying to say is someone will just automatically shut you down, cross you out, and not welcome you back into the space to engage with. And I think in a lot of ways, it's not appropriate when someone has crossed that line to welcome them back into that space. But I think when people, especially I think a lot of college first years coming in who may have come from a certain background and now they're being exposed to all these new ideas, I think you're going to say the wrong things in your classes. You're going to say the wrong things a lot. But it's those professors who don't write you off as being a fool or just being unaware or not XYZ enough that are the ones who really make a difference on you because they offer the critique in a kind and gracious way and then they give you the space and the tools to learn from that. We critique and we offer and then we make space for people to engage with it further. Yeah. I, I agree with that. You, you're kind of like dancing around this point of progressive circles can kind of be harsh. <laughs> that's yeah, that's the, yeah, that's the one. <laughs> and <laughs> we both run in pretty progressive circles. Yeah. I, I know I can at least speak for myself. I didn't always. And it took a while for me to, to read and learn about um, particularly like racial justice. And I was very grateful for the people who gave me the time and uh, gave me the benefit of the doubt while I was learning. I think that if you're doing the work correctly, you are committed to um, working for justice um, and learning the truth. I think that you and and you are engaging with people in good faith, then you're not casting out anybody who deviates in good faith. I think that there are people who come into these organizations in bad faith yeah. to just stir up trouble. 
and it's hard to distinguish. Pivoting from this, though, I do want to address that like a lot of conversation about like free speech and cancel culture has really been mm -hmm. focused on university campuses. Uh, we were both graduates of Notre Dame. I like beyond maybe like a protest against Charles Murray when he came. I don't remember like that much like yeah. liberal orthodoxy, <laughs> like sensing conservative speakers who came to campus, etc. Like, I, and, and maybe that was that's particular to Notre Dame and it certainly could be. John McWhorter had this article in The Atlantic about how right-leaning or centrist professors are worried about this new liberal orthodoxy and I think it's important that like people feel secure in their workplaces. I think that we should be more focused on policies. I think we should be more focused on institutional power that is trying to silence voices than the voices of like fellow faculty members yeah. or like undergrads. I think that the like institutional power of Notre Dame saying that there can no there can be like no pro-choice club on campus is like silencing voices. I think that the voices from our national government trying to like outlaw the use of yeah. New York yeah. Times reporting in classroom is silencing yeah. voices and that to me is um, dangerous. So our next question is about social media. This one came from my friend from high school, Hala, <laughs> and her main concern is about social media algorithms controlling us. I don't really know exactly what she was getting at. So I'm going to kind of take it in my own direction. <laughs> One of the things that I think a lot about as a political science PhD student is about how social media is really affecting our democracy and this upcoming election. And it's really scary. There was this piece in The Atlantic in December about how Russian disinformation campaigns have infiltrated uh, social media. Mm -hmm. I don't know. That really scares me. Social media algorithms also create these filter bubbles where we only see like ideological allies instead of any kind of pushback. That's also pretty scary. What do you what do you have to add about social media algorithms? Yeah, this is I'm happy this question came up because I was just talking with my friend Sean because now he has been mentioned multiple times with great ideas about this yesterday. There's a new Netflix documentary out called like The Social Dilemma. And I think it deals with this. It's scary. It's really scary growing up. My parents were very strict about ensuring that myself and my brothers were not on social media until we were much older and that even when we were, we didn't put out a lot of information. I felt like I did a good job with that up until about the end of high school. And then once I got to college, it felt like it was all out the window. And at this point, I just wonder, am I in too deep? Already, I mean, all my information is on Facebook, I'm on Instagram, I tweet, you can find articles written in the school paper. It just feels like there's so much out there that I don't know how to get it back. So a question for me and for you is, is that it now? Do we just keep living our lives knowing all of our information is out there? Or do we try to actively pull back from some of that? Yeah. So social media as a wider question, I, I think it's really hard to categorize social media as like a pure good or a pure evil mm -hmm. because, and, and I'm like firmly ambivalent on it. I think in the, the good camp, you have things like social media presumably helping like revolutions and revolutionaries like organize over Facebook and Twitter and like Palestinian freedom fighters helping like people in Ferguson with like tear gas masks. Those are hugely important and like communication is really helpful. And we, we saw over the summer, like social media campaigns raised millions of dollars for bail funds. That I think is like a good part of like the political use of social media. 
by activists. Yeah. A personal good part of social media is the like creation of alternate selves in adolescence and young adulthood we are trying on different identities and social media makes that like significantly easier and that can be a bad thing i don't want to say this is like a pure good but for people who feel out of place where they are with them with their true selves for instance like queer youth they can find communities online uh, in ways that they couldn't before and i think that that is a good thing of course it also goes the other way if you are a white supremacist, you can find communities online in ways that you couldn't before. Mm-hmm. There is a good and a bad to all these things. Yeah. So I think social media is really complicated. I'm not sure if it's creating new problems beyond like the speed at which disinformation spreads. Mm-hmm. I think it's just exacerbating already human frailties. Yeah. And also, it, as you said, it's like a both end. It's doing that, but it's also uniquely bringing people together in ways, I think, especially during COVID. Imagining what the pandemic would have been like without social media and without ways to engage friends and family who are nowhere near us or just weren't quarantining with us is is unmanageable. Un- yeah, un- and you've you've gotten really into TikTok, so. Oh my gosh. Okay, all right. I don't have a TikTok, but well, I have the app downloaded. I don't actually have an account, but it's still perfectly curated to all of my niche interests. I'm getting dark academia and Harry Potter and revolutionary theory and it's grad school videos, which is kind of freaky because I've given it no information on myself whatsoever. Almost like going to a fortune teller and then they tell you exactly what your future is going to be. That's it's kind of how I feel about TikTok right now. <laughs> so our final question, who is someone that you look up to, hope to be like, or are inspired by? Yeah, I think I too. I always have a lot of trouble answering this because... I just feel like I draw a lot of energy from other people and I constantly love to just look to folks as role models. But right now, two people that I'm really enjoying reading a lot about and their life philosophies are Mary McAleese, who was um, the president, I believe, of Ireland and she wanted to kind of change the Catholic Church for good. So she went and she got her degree in canon law in Rome and is now trying to change the church on the inside to better the experience of being a Catholic for women and queer folks, which is amazing. And then also Dorothy Day. There's definitely some things that I don't agree with her on completely, but I think her idea of radical humility and hospitality in light of the gospel and what social teaching is important. And the last person is my friend Gracie Watkins, who just ah, lives life with such joy, love, and grace, not to play on her name, but she just carries herself in a way that I really haven't seen in anybody else. And I love her a lot. And she's an an amazing person and an amazing role model. So yeah, that's me. That was a whole mouthful. But Nick, what about for you? My go-to answer for this kind of question has, at least for the last couple of years, been Brian Stevenson, who did Just Mercy, Mm -hmm. who runs uh, Equal Justice Initiative. Uh, I find him just really inspiring in terms of his like moral clarity and his just dedication to uh, fighting for justice. Yeah. Yeah. So this is the end of our episode, but we like to end our episode. Uh, this has been a lighter one, but we'll end something yeah. with something that's made us happy over the past week. I'll go first. So when I pose these questions on my social media, I got a lot of responses from friends who are struggling with grad school, who are struggling with like starting work. Mm. I hear you. I am also struggling with the hundreds of pages of reading I do every week. It is really hard. However, 
I have really enjoyed, I went out uh, for drinks with my cohort last night. The bar scene in New Haven is better than South Bend's. I was like pleasantly surprised. And uh, we were able to like sit outside in like a safe COVID environment. Uh, it was just a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun to meet new people. How about you, Elizabeth? Oh, I love that, Nick. The hours of 2 to 6 p.m. yesterday, Friday, were just really good for me. I'm working at the student-run flower shop called Irish Gardens. Come check us out in uh, the basement of La Fortune Hall. Thank you. And we had a pop-up flower shop outside of South Dining Hall. And in particular, there are these three guys that came by. And I think one of them has a girlfriend. And the other two came up and said, we're trying to help our buddy pick out flowers for his girlfriend. He didn't do a great job last time. And they stood there. And the three of them were like, she likes roses. Okay. Um, can we get a red or yellow? Are we going to oversaturate the rose market? I don't know. Should we change it up? Should we do what vase? Should we get the aesthetic looking one or or that regular one? And it was just like the sweetest thing. And it made me really, really happy. So come buy flowers. It brings people in your life joy. It brings me joy to see you debating which flowers to get. So that was my something good. Friday afternoons are for the boys to pick out flowers. Like that's... Yes. Cancel toxic masculinity. Yes, Nick. That's the new slogan. <laughs> well, thank you everybody who's been listening to our just like chilling <laughs> and answering thank questions. You. Thank you to everybody who suggested questions or topics. Um, we really appreciated it and we hope to do more of this in the future. Follow us on our social media, even though it is spooky, <laughs> at DHDcast on Instagram and on Twitter. We'll be back next time with Erica Brown can't wait to talk to her but until then have a good week enjoy take care of yourself bye